1: is something so broad and insubstantial it's hard to describe outside the most mundane terms and cliches. Doing what you want, when you want, is something of the whole of it. The thought of losing your freedom, of going from being your own autonomous person to some fraction of a human being given over to the thrall of someone else is horrifying for most everybody. Wars have been fought for freedom, millions upon millions killed for it in The short history of the earth, In those cases, it was easy to say, this person, these people, are trying to steal this from me. They are trying to take my, our, autonomy, our right to choose for ourselves to decide. But what about when the threat against your freedom comes from inside, from something implanted in you, growing in you? What do you do then? Hello, my name's Tyler Bell, and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales, as well as the author and narrator of the story you're about to hear. Today's story concerns the aftermath of an attack on a young man walking home from a bar. He survives the encounter, but the cost is that he finds himself burdened with a new and unwelcome life. But before we get to that, this month's recommendations. This month's literature recommendation is, quite literally, my favorite novel. Possibly of all time, but I haven't read everything yet. Davis Grubb's 1962 novel, The Voices of Glory, is the best book I have ever read in my life. Claim I do not make or take lightly. Set in the fictional town of Glory, West Virginia, which itself is modeled off the real-life Moundsville, West Virginia, the book concerns a period of time stretching out around the early 1900s. Without getting into spoilers, the novel is told from the first-person perspectives of dozens of the town's residents. Indigent workers, prisoners, bankers, and politicians most every facet and form of life of the time is represented to a certain degree. Though all of these voices of glory have their own ends as far as their tales are concerned, they largely concern interactions with the book's protagonist, Marcy Cressop, an anti-infectious disease activist whose family was destroyed by tuberculosis. Her struggles against both the disease and the prevailing sentiments and ignorance that perpetuate it form the largesse of the book. But that said, there is substantially more to Voices than just that. Voices of Glory is ultimately a dissection of early 1900s America, a place of newfound wealth and optimism still mired in the racism, bigotry, and ignorance of its white, puritanical upbringing. Addressed without preaching, are topics ranging from nudity and education to post-enslavement resettlement of black Americans to corruption and misplaced patriotism and how the greedy, intentional ignorance of the affluent spreads many diseases amongst the common man. Read it. Read it, read it, read it. Despite its concerns of events we're a hundred years removed from, some of the stories struck me so hard, so personally I broke down in tears while reading them. It is a largely forgotten work of a largely forgotten American master of the craft. This month's random horror recommendation is the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs, I didn't grow up watching horror hosts like Elvira or Sven Gulli, and I felt somewhat regretful about just how much I missed now that I've been watching The Last Drive-In. It's a fairly simple show and premise, Joe Bob, a sort of Ur-Texan caricature played by the real-life journalist John Irving Bloom, introduces and then watches a horror movie with the audience, stopping at times to break down different scenes and give little tidbits of information about, well, everything. A standard show starts with his drive-in totals, a list of happenings in the movie coded with terminology sometimes only his audience can understand, before Joe Bob jumps into the movie. But before that actually happens, he usually goes off on a tangent about the film, the director, some of the actors, really most anything you can think of. What really makes the show valuable is Joe Bob's treasure trove of Hollywood and horror trivia, which reaches back more than 100 years and spans the globe. If you want to know about a niche... All but forgotten Italian director, Joe Bob, can tell you not just what the guy got up to after the movie was released. He can also give you the address of the guy's bookstore. I can't really say enough about The Last Drive-In. It's on Shutter, so go check it out when you get a second. If you don't want to pay, they've always got some sort of free deal to get you in the door. I'll leave links for that and the literature recommendation in the episode description. Now, without further ado, today's story, Carrier. felt a moment of clarity in the fog, a woman's eyes catching his across the visual din of the bar. It was accidental, brief, but the effect was like teeth catching in a slipped bike chain. His mind hitched, spun, and dragged him up from the
0: alcohol mists and back into the bar. His drink was gone. The seat beside him was empty. Carl? He asked,
1: looking around. His brain tried to put the scene together to get him back on track. There was a receipt on the bar, which he picked up and looked over. About twenty drinks split between the two of them and a stack of small bills on the paper for the tip. Oh, fuck. Your friend left, the bartender said, gathering up the cash. Ollie swiveled to see the guy,
0: trying to focus with one eye. The bartender was many. He handed Ollie a drink. He closed out for you. You're cut off after this one. It's from her, down on the end. He pointed and
1: Ollie followed the finger to where the girl had been, the one that had looked at him. Her eyes had been... Ollie took a sip of the drink, a fruity colored thing not at all his speed, and shook his head. He put it down on the bar and raised a hand. I think I've had too much, Ollie said. There was more clarity in the world now, but only just a bit. I need to get home. Whatever, the bartender said, pulling the drink off the bar and dumping it in the sink. Ollie listened to it swirl away and then stumbled off the bar stool. The crowd had dwindled some since he'd gotten there, but it was still thick enough he had to fight his way out the door. Ollie wasn't a big guy. Crowds were a pain. Cigarette smoke colored the air dull gray outside the door, clinging longer than usual to the chill, motionless October air. He lit a cigarette of his own, an almost tasteless Marlboro ultralight, and leaned against the exterior bricks of the bar. Cold prickled his skin, dragging him further up out of the boozy stupor he'd been in just a second ago. The houses on the opposite side of the street were festooned in orange and black decorations, pumpkins and black cats and the like. He finished the cigarette on the walk, turning his coat up against the wind and looking behind him more than a few times when he thought he'd heard something. It always turned out to be leaves, but that didn't much take the edge off. He still lived near campus, despite having graduated nearly four years ago, and muggings were on the rise now that it got dark early. Then he turned around and did see something that nearly made him jump out of his skin. A woman, or maybe a short man, was standing in the middle of the road in some ridiculous Halloween costume. A black cape with a high-peaked collar that completely obscured the figure beneath. The sight was startling enough it froze him in place for just a second. Then he was looking around in the bushes near him for kids with a camera. The news was full of stories of teenagers hurting themselves and others trying to copy the pranks from that jackass show on MTV. Real fucking funny, asshole! He yelled at the person. They stood beneath a street light, not really in the center of the street, but sort of off to the side where a car might usually be parked. There was some movement as the cloaked person raised their hands over their head, pushing the fabric of the cape upward and making a black splotch of a silhouette against the streetlight.
0: Fuck you,
1: Ollie whispered under his breath, turning and shoving his hands in his pockets. The night was colder than he expected, almost bitter, cutting. He should have bit the bullet and taken a taxi or something. Walking faster, he could feel the wind cut deeper into his skin. He wanted to walk backwards, but he was worried about looking weird in front of the kids that may or may not be hiding in the bushes with cameras and laughing at him. He looked up and froze, not really noticing the wind anymore. There was another person in that same stupid cloak ahead of him now, again beneath a street lamp. He looked around and found a fairly well-lit alley that cut through to the street he lived on, Lawrence Avenue. The alleyway was still several blocks up from his house, but it had put a solid wall of buildings between him and this crew of assholes. The person in the cloak raised their hands up again and he shook his head, ducking into the alley without a second thought and starting into a light jog. He tucked his chin and cheeks into the neck of his hoodie to warm himself, trying to ignore the hair standing on the back of his neck. If those kids want to shoot me running away like a chicken shit, then fine, he thought to himself. He heard a scratching in the alley behind him, turning to see the cloaked person standing just a few yards away beneath the motion control light that had clicked on when he'd passed a second ago. It raised its hands slowly, or not its hands, but something else. This close, the black fabric looked thicker, far more substantial and darker than simple cloth. Something more like
0: leather. Something slightly wet. The light clicked off. Ollie turned and ran, hearing and
1: sort of seeing the light click on behind him. Then there was a noise unlike anything he'd ever heard, the rasp of something powerful sliding quickly along the ground. A rush of air accompanied it, blowing up a gust of leaves that crashed into Ollie's face. It brushed his leg as well, nearly knocking him off his feet. He caught his balance, lost it, and then tripped over a stack of flattened cardboard boxes. He landed on his knees, hissing when the rough concrete shredded through his jeans and into his skin. Then he saw it, laying formless over the cracks and pebbles like a puddle of half-dried sealing tar. It was black, deeply black like silk or space or something else. He couldn't make sense of it. It rose from a pile of leathery, wet flesh too loose and formless for anything with bones, rose and pushed and pulsed until it was standing tall and almost maddeningly two-dimensional before him. It assumed the shape he'd seen, looking like a person inside a cloak. And he could see something vaguely human in the shapes before him, the contours of an eyeless skull, the lines of fingers, other shapes and shadows that were both familiar and then maddeningly, horrifyingly, impossibly wrong a moment later. Ollie pushed himself to his feet wincing when he felt how badly he'd skinned his knees. He raised his hands, not knowing what he was seeing, not knowing how to defend himself from this strangeness. It was still growing and stretching even higher over a thin bit of framework that might be hands. The last, foolish part of him was still holding out hope that a group of industrious teens were
0: about to jump out of the bushes and laugh. Please, he said, not knowing what else to say. The
1: thing burst open, tearing top to bottom and casting its wavering flesh to the entire width of the alley. Ollie saw wet viscera shining like the pearlescent interior of a seashell. Light caught and danced in the thin scrim of mucus along this membrane, and then exploded in rolling brilliance into Ollie's eyes. Pulse after pulse of magnetic rainbow illumination, tearing into his mind, into his thoughts, He turned and vomited and stumbled away from the light show, trying to crawl away on his hands and knees. Something like a hand dragged him back by his ankle. He screamed and kicked at it, feeling a give and hearing something almost like a scream. He looked to aim another kick, to finally free himself, and caught another full dose of the light in his eyes. This time he felt it filling his mind, pushing all the furniture up against the walls to clear space for something more. He tried to backpedal away, managing only to push himself onto the pile of cardboard. Then the thing fell on him, engulfing him in its electric light show. He tried to push it away, tried to claw away the translucent material flickering all around him, deadening him. He saw something like a face in that madness. Again, the smooth and almost human shapes of cheekbones and eye sockets. This thing was only inches from him, as much there as not. An illusion in a mad rainbow. It stabbed him. Ollie screamed, clutching at the barb now buried in the right side of his abdomen, feeling the slick hardness of it as his own blood seeped up around the wound. Then a cold burst of ecstatic confusion rushed into his system, washing over his brain and crushing what was left of his consciousness. The stinger pushed deeper inside his abdomen. Pain pulled Ollie out of his stupor, and another surge of chemical euphoria pushed him back down, held him under like a riptide. Then the numbness was complete, and he could do nothing but push into the rubbery flesh around him, trying in vain to scrape through it with his stubby fingernails. He felt his eyes rolling back into his head. He was dying, he thought, letting the numbness take him now, letting go entirely.
0: The worst part was he liked the feeling of it. In a sick, nonsensical way, he liked it. He liked it. Ollie woke in the pile of flattened boxes the next morning, his breath a light
1: fog over his eyes. Pain in the right side of his torso dragged him out of a cottony, endless sleep. He touched the wound he found gingerly, wondering how he could still be alive and then lay back on the boxes. Maybe he was dying, and it just hadn't quite taken yet. He looked at his hand and saw a mix of tacky blood, his, and some indefinable goo, a clearish sort of mucus he wiped away on the boxes. He didn't have the courage to look at the wound yet, but it felt bad. Bad not just because it was fairly large, the size of his thumb at least, but bad because it was already closed over. Bad because his guts weren't spilled out of his abdomen and laying out in the street. "'Bad, because there was something hard and tight beneath the surface of his skin.
0: "'And he could feel it moving, if only a little. "'Why?' he asked the sky, and the sky said nothing. "'Eventually, Ollie pushed himself to his feet. "'Nothing remained of the shrouded, flickering thing that had attacked him "'save the
1: blood on his shirt and the boxes. "'The boxes, he noticed, had been shredded to pieces here and there and packed in tightly around him like a sort of nest. If he'd laid there unconscious without it, he might have succumbed to the cold. But he hadn't. Ollie looked at the outline of himself on the cardboard and then fell to his knees and puked. The color was all wrong, brown and red, flecked with chunks of something black. The sight of it made him puke again and again until there was nothing left, leaving him to collapse, shuddering against the wall. Ollie decided against just giving in to hypothermia and started walking toward his house down the block. He clutched his arms over his elbows, trying and failing to return some lost warmth that now seemed forever gone. He tried not to let people see his face, either, though he didn't know why. Maybe, he thought, they'd have seen him sleeping in the alley.
0: Maybe, he thought, they knew what had happened. Maybe, he thought, they'd laugh at him. Surely, he knew, they wouldn't understand. Ollie stopped in front of the
1: stately old brick building where he rented one of the upstairs apartments with his girlfriend, Allie. She would be worried about him, and probably more than a bit pissed off. He was supposed to be home probably two hours before. Well,
0: before what had happened, happened. Now it was mid-afternoon on a Wednesday. He swallowed. He nearly jumped out of his skin
1: when a jogger he hadn't noticed brushed by him, already yards away by the time Ollie could turn and look. The man was wearing sweatpants and an oversized hoodie with the arms cut off, but the shape of him as he ran off down the street was enough like the thing to make Ollie feel unsettled. He looked up where his apartment was, where Allie might be right now furiously watching some trashy reality TV shows and waiting for him, and
0: thought better of it. He turned and walked down the street to find something to eat. Ollie finally
1: settled on a down-home-style fried chicken diner about ten blocks from where he lived. He'd been there with friends one time while they were drunk. They'd all hated the food, and Allie never talked about the place, which made it perfect in his mind he wouldn't run into anybody he knew and nobody would remember him. He barely made it inside. Pain from the wound had grown to unbearable levels as he walked, rising from a dull ache to a constant stabbing that made him grit his teeth. He was thankful, at least, that he'd worn a dark concert t-shirt the night before because the blood didn't stand out against the black fabric.
0: Thankfully, as well, the thing hadn't stabbed him through his hoodie so he zipped it up tightly. "'Good morning, hon,' the waitress said, only partially paying attention to him. She was a hefty, middle-aged
1: woman wearing jeans and a tight black T-shirt. He kept his head down and ordered, having to repeat himself when the woman said she couldn't hear him for all his mumbling. He apologized and walked through his order again, hating the sound of his voice and wondering if people were looking at him. When the lady was gone... He glanced down and saw the restaurant was mostly empty, and the few customers had their own business to mind. The order was coffee, chicken, and waffles. Normally a meal that size would have him requesting a to-go box by the end of the meal. Instead, he found himself asking for seconds, though he got milk instead of coffee on the second go. All the eating made him feel better, a little giddy even, though he still didn't like the thought of people seeing him. Baby, are you okay? The waitress asked him when she brought his check over. He pulled out his wallet quickly to show her he had money, thinking that was what she was about to ask him about. He looked like shit, he
0: knew. He had to. But he'd hoped he didn't look like some dine-and-dash junkie. I'm fine, Ollie mumbled, hesitating for a bit. Sorry if I don't look it. Sorry,
1: the woman asked. You didn't do anything wrong. And you can put most of that cash back, hun. The bill was only ten bucks. Ollie looked down at the cash he'd thrown on the table. Nearly fifty dollars. All the cash he had left after a long night of drinking. His mind wandered to Carl and where his friend might have gone the night before. Something caught his chest and he almost hiccuped. Then he realized he was sobbing. Hun, do you need help? The woman asked softly. He looked up and saw the concern on her face. She wore simple, wire-framed glasses with a neck chain that made her look comically older. I'm fine, Ollie said, tucking some of the money back into his wallet. He looked at the empty plate on the table. Just, just a little sick, I think. You sure? She asked, and this time she touched his shoulder with the barest tips of her fingers. The reaction was like a lightning bolt coursing all the way through him. He stood sharply and backed up against the wall, taking a deep breath. The few other patrons looked over at them now, mostly just curious. Ollie couldn't take his eyes off his shoes. There was a spot of dried blood on the right rubber toe cap. So small, probably only he could see it.
0: Because he knew where to look. I'm sorry, the woman said. I didn't mean... It's okay, Ollie said, pushing past without touching her. It's fine. He walked, not really knowing where to go, finally deciding
1: on a corner gas station where he knew there was a single-person bathroom with a door that locked. He felt like a criminal, keeping his head down and his hood slightly up, though the attendants paid him no mind. The dozen or so customers in the place were all lined up at the counter. Ollie glanced at each of them individually, not knowing why, just knowing that he needed to. He had to wait the better part of five minutes for his turn in the bathroom. A legitimate heroin addict took the stall before him, and Ollie waited out the soft sounds of the man getting fixed. Little drips of water and the flick of a lighter's flint wheel. Tapping. A sigh. Eventually, the man stumbled out, and Ollie flitted in and locked the door behind him. The air smelled like whatever the previous occupant had shot up with, alongside the usual stink of piss and pine-scented air freshener. Ollie took off his hoodie and hung it over the horizontal handbar beside the toilet before looking himself over in the mirror. It wasn't good. It was, in fact, quite awful. There were bruises on his face he didn't remember getting, as well as a heavy purple mark on his neck that looked like some sort of bite, one where teeth hadn't broken skin. Smears of blood covered his face and chest, though they had dried to the color of dirt and mostly faded. His skin was gray with exhaustion. He looked older than his mid-twenties, for sure. The band t-shirt was ruined. A loose, ragged hole in the fabric hung like a broken jaw. The skin beneath was so blackly bruised it almost didn't seem like the shirt had a hole in it or that he was wearing an undershirt. He pulled the clothing off, wincing and bending his torso to keep from irritating the wound. The hole was hideous, though not as bad as he'd expected. Not as bad as it should be, at least. The puncture looked puckered shut, like an asshole that had been superglued closed. Blood smeared the skin down to and past his hips. It had soaked his jeans in a rust-red crescent that spread all the way to the top of his right pocket. The denim was crusty to the touch. Worst of all was the area around the puncture wound. It was swollen and bruised fully black in a circle bigger than his hand. A hard bit the size of a softball sat beneath raised flesh, and more bruising spread sideways across his stomach and hips in slender, horizontal splotches of light purple. They looked almost like clouds at sundown. He touched the opening gingerly, using just the tip of his right forefinger. The reaction was immediate, intense pain and a sudden feeling of dizziness that threatened to drop him to the floor.
0: Then, worse, much worse. He could feel it. Something inside him.
1: It twisted inside the softball-sized mass in his stomach, clenching and unclenching itself, wriggling. The sensation was too much. Ollie dove for the toilet and prepared to puke up the massive breakfast he'd just eaten. He only managed to dry-heave there for a long time, stomach bucking until tears came to his eyes,
0: producing nothing more than a stream of hot bile. There was nothing left in there. Not a goddamn thing.
1: Allie was waiting inside the archway to the kitchen when he finally stepped through the front door of their apartment. Her arms were crossed and her hair floated in a messy ball over the soft
0: folds of a thin, pink sweatshirt. Where were you? She asked, voice softer than her eyes. He looked around the room,
1: not knowing what to say. I called Carl. Carl. He said he hadn't seen you since
0: last night. Ollie cleared his throat, said nothing, and then walked into the kitchen. Are you serious? She asked.
1: She never raised her voice. At her loudest, it was as still and scratchy as a fresh needle on an old record. He grabbed a drink of water at the sink and finished it in a gulp. Then another, another. She followed him to the sink, pushing him lightly on the shoulder. Her eyes were more serious now and he could see the bags underneath them. Something happened, he muttered, looking into the sink. Dots of water lay still on the aluminum catch basin, throwing back his distorted reflection. Only the barest swatches of color, his shirt, his hair, his skin. Idly, he thought these things would be how they identified him in the alley if things had turned out differently. He would have been male, brown-haired, fair-skinned, until the police dug out his wallet. What? she asked. He could tell by her tone she already had an entire story in her head, start to finish.
0: Something she'd been working on between episodes of Pimp My Ride and Charm School. Who is she? I don't know. I don't know, Ollie said, surprising himself with the answer. It felt
1: simultaneously correct and was also not at all what he'd wanted to say. He tried correcting himself, but Allie was already pushing him, tears spilling onto her cheeks. You motherfucker, she all but whispered. It's not like that, he said, grabbing the counter to keep from falling. Allie was actually something of an athlete back in high school, and still retained most of the muscle and all of the assertiveness. She worked shit hours as a paralegal at the same law firm where he was a janitor. Who is she? Allie said pushing him again. He was crying now, too, feeling sick and hot-skinned, slick. He grabbed her arms, trying to hold her back, trying to say what had happened. "'It's not like that, Allie,' he said. She jerked free of his grasp and pushed him again, but low in the belly this time. The pressure on the thing in his abdomen created a riptide of pain that buckled his knees and dropped him to the floor.' His vision went gray for a moment, when he came to, he realized he was laying on his side on the ground, curled up around the nasty little lump and howling with pain. Allie was standing over him, eyes the same shade of horrified you give to a homeless person screaming at
0: God in a pet store window. I can't breathe, All he said. It was mostly true. The breaths
1: came in gasps short little puffs that he couldn't quite keep down. Allie held her hands out over top him, her fingers wriggling the way they did when she was trying to think fast.
0: Are you? Are you fucking with me, Ollie? She asked. No, he said between breaths. He tried to get
1: off the floor, but only succeeded in rolling onto his knees. His forehead stayed plastered to the kitchen linoleum. He could feel the voids between the material and the decking beneath sticking and unsticking on ancient glue every time he moved his head. The surface smelled like feet and water, with a lingering scent of some lemon cleaning agent.
0: He gagged. Jesus Christ, Ollie, she said. He could see she had the phone in her hand. I'm calling for an ambulance. No, he whispered, but she didn't hear him.
1: He could barely unclench his jaw to speak. He fell onto his side again, and when that sent another shockwave of pain through his body, he rolled onto his back. He could see Allie worriedly pacing the kitchen as he lay, dying maybe, on linoleum. He could feel specks of dirt sticking to his cheeks and thought absently that they really needed to sweep in there. "'They're on their way,' she said, hanging up the phone. "'Is this where it hurts?' She placed a hand over the sweaty fist he'd made over the wound, and he nodded.
0: Please let me see, Ollie. Attacked, he said, barely holding on to his senses. In an alley by the bar.
1: He felt the strength flooding out of his muscles then, out of his mind. It was like his sense of self was a tide that had just then receded from the sands of reality, leaving only a sort of fog, the smell of memory dead things in their empty homes, shells, billions of them, smashed into the sand until the sand they became. Listless, lost, floating at the edge of eternity in a ball of black cloth, the stars passing in gentle circles around him, the cold of space not really cold, but an absence of heat and presence so deep it stole the heat of the soul, leaving him black and dead and floating in that sea of blackened death searching for the shore. Oh, my God, she said. The sound of her voice pulled him out of the dream like a string that had been threaded into his empty eye sockets. Then he could see again. The kitchen ceiling was covered in terrible, yellowed wallpaper that was the exact same pattern as the linoleum. The previous tenants had smoked, he remembered. He couldn't move his arms or legs, though he desperately needed to. The pain was unbearable, and somehow not being able to curl up around it made it worse. Ollie, what happened? Allie asked. Her face was a swimming mass of light and dark, utterly without contrast, just shadows and highlights and the blurred borders between those areas. Her voice sounded like a tin drum being smashed with old circular saw blades and wooden mallets, coming in, coming in, coming in. The image of his girlfriend resolved itself, and he could see the horror on her perfectly normal, perfectly human face. His hand moved now, too, though only with great effort, as though his brain were screaming to get the signal to reach. It got me. In the alley, he said. I don't want to talk to the police. The police? She said, her face screwing up in confusion. do you mean it? You said you were with some girl. Was I? Ollie said. He breathed still in small, short bursts, little gasps of air that felt like they were passing through cotton. It was beautiful, like fireworks. It hurt me. Hey there, Westsiders. I hope you're enjoying another free, independently produced episode of the West Side Fairy Tales. While the West Side Fairy Tales will always remain free and available to the public, why not buy a souvenir of the show from the West Side Fairy Tales merch store at westsidefairytales.com slash merch? This month, we're offering 10% off our 11 by 17 inch promo posters. Do you want a kick-ass rose skull from the West Side Fairy Tales logo hanging on your wall? Do you want it signed at no additional charge? Then go get you one at westsidefairytales.com slash merch and use code CARRIER at checkout. Support independent horror and get yourself a dope souvenir. Head to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and get you something. Now, back to our story. He wakes a couple times in the back of the ambulance, and then on an operating table. The room around him is empty and his clothes are gone. There is a great disk of light floating over him, the surgical lighting apparatus. Beyond this petty internal sun is the faded gray chalk paleness of the ceiling, which he can see is made of white, plastic panels. Dimples along these panels cast conical shadows, all of which point toward the light floating over him. He sits up and looks down his chest to where a simple piece of white paper covers his genitals. The sparse hair on his chest and stomach have been shaved bare, leaving only dots of stubble. A series of black dotted lines and nonsensical symbols are drawn on the flesh over the lump the thing had left inside of him. They encircle and crisscross, terminating at the puckered entry wound. He can see it moving inside, writhing, tiny little claws nicking the surface of his skin. "'pressing until the flesh is pushed to a high, thin point. "'Then the skin splits and slips down over the claws, "'leaving blood to trickle away from the wound at a steady pace. "'One claw, two claws, five, eight, ten. "'His stomach is growing a mouth of nasty little viper fangs. "'The pain is enormous. "'Then there are eighty, ninety of these little claws, "'all arranged in a circle that shifts, suddenly, "'tearing a great disc of his flesh loose.' And then the claws are moving out onto him. And the thing that pushes itself free is draped in his intestines. Chewing the half-digested shit out of his bowels and letting it drip over the white paper covering his groin. Its eyes are
0: like the spaces between stars. It moans and looks at him. He screams. Son, settle down, the doctor said. Ollie can only barely see
1: him. He is still half in the dream. Orderlies and men in other uniforms are holding him down against the bed. There's something vaguely military about everything, even the cotton of his new clothes is heavy, stiff, and uncomfortable. The doctor grabs him by the chin and makes their eyes connect. Calm down, Ollie. He does this time, taking a great many breaths and blinking and looking around his new surroundings. He's in a single-occupant hospital room the kind he watched his Uncle Matthew die in when he was six. There was a table, a few chairs, and the complicated plastic bed where they laid him. An oblong curtain rod hung over and around him, but had been pulled back behind the headboard. The men surrounding him had the grim, professionally bored expressions he associated with cops and other professional trigger pullers. "'There we go,' the doctor said. "'How are we feeling?' "'A touch confused.'
0: I wager? Yes, Ollie said. Where's Allie? Where am I? The hospital, of course, the doctor said. What hospital? Ollie asked. Your friend,
1: unfortunately, couldn't come along with you, the doctor said. I understand you're in a relationship, but unfortunately you aren't married, so she's not allowed to visit.
0: Just yet, at least. Who are you? Ollie asked. Dr. Jeffrey Crabb, he said, holding out a hand.
1: Ollie shook it, noting the rubber medical gloves. He could see the man's knuckle hair coiled beneath the translucent white like snakes. I'm the head of a, well, a special cases department here at the hospital. I've been tasked with overseeing your situation after it was transferred to us by your local
0: doctor. Local? Local? All he asked. He touched the ball in his stomach. It had grown. I thought you'd taken it out of me. I, I remember an operating table.
1: Dr. Crabb raised an eyebrow, looking at some of the other men in the room as if to confer with them. The lot of the others remained silent and placid, almost frozen in place. They'd let go of his limbs now that he'd stopped thrashing, but remained close. You were. On an operating table earlier this
0: week, yes. Dr. Crabb said, This week? Ollie asked. Fortunately, operations were stalled
1: when the doctors at your local ER noticed the <coughs> uniqueness of the surgery they were about to undertake. Dr. Crabbe continued, Your little passenger down there, son, is incredibly valuable.
0: Passenger?
1: Ollie asked. Yes, Dr. Crabb said. He made a shooing motion and the orderlies cleared the way for him. A female nurse wearing gloves and a surgical mask dragged up a heavy-looking machine cart thing made of the white plastic ubiquitous to hospital equipment. She flicked a series of switches and the thing slowly came to life, sounding like an asthmatic office printer. Then she pulled up Ollie's shirt and squirted a cold gob of gel on his stomach. He hissed, but she didn't seem to notice. She, instead, rubbed something that looked like a combination electric razor and computer mouse over the ball in his stomach. It was terribly uncomfortable, and he found himself bracing for an onset of the painful shock waves he'd experienced when Allie had pushed him. Allie. He needed Allie here right now, she was all he had. His parents were trash, junky fuck-ups who split their time between the highway underpasses downtown and single wide trailers out past the 264 loop. All he had was his uncle and his aunt, and he lost them both by the time he was in his late teens. Just in time for him to not wind up in some fucked-up group home,
0: but that was the best he could say for himself. But he'd had Allie through most of that. He wanted her here. There we go,
1: Dr. Crabb said. Moving the nurse aside, she stumbled out of the way but kept the weird mouse razor thing in place. Ollie nearly puked when Dr. Crabb turned the monitor in his direction and pointed to the swirling black and white figures on the screen. Do you
0: see here and here? No, Ollie said, his voice low and horrified. The shapes were terribly apparent,
1: curled up into a ball beside each other. Even though they weren't really human-shaped... He could see what they were perfectly. Beyond and about them, something like a tight sack rested against the ghosts of his intestines. Okay, well, what you're seeing is... No! Ollie yelled, reaching down and slapping the ultrasound device out of the nurse's hand. She yelped, jelly splattering across the front of her scrubs and the plastic handheld device clattering along the floor at the lengths of its wire tether. Even Dr. Crabb looked taken aback. Now, son, I know this must be fairly extraordinary news. He started, raising a hand. The heavies around the table, the large male orderlies and the men with the unfamiliar uniforms, took a step forward. But Dr. Crabbe stilled them with a snap of his fingers. I know this must be fairly extraordinary news, but it is very much a good thing, both for you and for this country. What the fuck are you talking about? Ollie all but yelled. It's inside of me. I don't want it there. I don't even want to see pictures
0: of it. Mr. Combs, the doctor said. But Ollie continued. Why are we still talking? He gasped. He could feel the
1: things inside him shifting. He knew there were things now. Plural. He wanted to fucking die. But more than that, he wanted them gone. Cut them the fuck out of me. There was a jolt of pain, and he realized it was the creatures reacting to his agitation. The thought made him sick, as though he could feel any more ill than he already did at the moment. "'I'm sorry, son, but we can't do that,' Dr. Krabs said, folding his hands. The nurse had retrieved the ultrasound device and was now cleaning it with a blue paper towel. When she squirted more of the nasty petroleum jelly on Ollie's stomach, he could sense outright animosity in the sheer amount she used." This is, in short, a
0: miracle, Dr. Crabb said. Ollie just looked at him. The miracle, in fact, of life. Ollie shook his
1: head in disbelief. The doctor continued without pause, pointing at the eel-like forms squishing over one another in the display. They were fairly immobile on second view, and Ollie realized what he was seeing was a heartbeat. These creatures have no analog on earth, Mr. Combs. Dr. Krabs said. Ollie could see some glee in the man's eye. This is an entirely alien species to this world, never before seen, and, it should be said, I understand your discomfort and unease at hosting these life forms. Do you understand? Ollie almost shouted. The heavies moved closer without Dr. Krabs' order, flooding the space around the hospital bed like so many Nazgul. There is something fucking growing in me, and I want it gone. What the fuck is the hang? He groaned too agitated, and the pain surged, shocking the rest of the words out of his throat. The heavies exchanged glances, wordlessly wondering whether this deserved some intervention on their part. Crab opened his mouth to say something, but the nurse hurriedly tugged on his sleeve, pointing to the monitor. He turned to it, and they conversed in hushed voices, buttons on the machine until it spat out a yard of information on what looked like drugstore receipt paper. Miraculous, Dr. Crabb said, turning back to Ollie. He took a breath and continued talking. I don't use that word often, you know. I'm a man of science. It's rare to come across a true miracle, and I consider life one of those. Babies are sacred, you understand. Blameless creatures, innocents and there is no greater sin in the eyes of God to hurt an innocent. These creatures are no less innocent than any baby, son. You must understand that. I understand your conception of them must have been fairly traumatic. Your uh, live-in girlfriend told the paramedics that picked you up that you'd been attacked. Her understanding was that your injury was a badly infected stab wound. The truth is, you were struck with something akin to an ovipositor a mating tube that forcibly pushes the larva of one species into a birth host, either a creature of that species or another. It's not without analog on Earth. In fact, there are several forms of parasite, wasps in particular, that breed with this method. Parasites, Ollie said. He was getting sick. So desperately now that he wanted to just live over a toilet and puke out his guts until he died. He was still waiting to wake up, to be honest. This might only be a second layer of dreams. A deeper sheet of nightmare laid over him while he slept away a fever in some better place. Oh, don't think of these creatures that way, Dr. Crabb said, pointing again to the screen. They are, certainly, parasitic in their reproduction method, but the setup of their prenatal environment inside you is quite remarkable. They have their own amniotic sacs that have attached to the fascia inside your torso. These umbilical structures here and here are siphoning nutrients and incredibly excreting waste materials directly into your kidneys. You will have to drink a lot of water. Without looking at Ollie, the doctor stood before the display, shaking his head. What I'm trying to get at is that these unborn children won't hurt you, the doctor said. There will be some fairly extraordinary discomforts, of course but no permanent or even lasting injuries, I believe. We'll monitor the gestation like any other atypical pregnancy, just in case they start having an undue effect on your internal organs. Ollie just looked at the man, not knowing what to say.
0: I want it out, he said. I don't care about anything you just said. Fuck miracles. I want them out. Them, meaning the babies, Dr. Crabb said. His
1: eyes were low and insistent, meaning he wanted Ollie to use that terminology going forward.
0: The fucking parasites! Ollie corrected him, glaring. I want them gone! He sniffed, not realizing he was on
1: the verge of tears. He wasn't given to crying, but the situation was insane. I know this is hard for you, but... The thing fucking raped me! Ollie hissed.
0: He was crying now. Really crying. He hadn't expected himself to say that out loud, but he did. His entire body was shaking. He
1: also didn't expect one of the heavies near the foot of the bed to chuckle. The entire room looked at the man, including Dr. Crabb, and he left without saying a word. But nobody ever apologized on his behalf. It did, Ollie said, almost so nobody could hear him. That's what happened. That's what this is. The nurse beside the ultrasound machine coughed, placed the handheld device back in its cradle without cleaning it, and left the room as well. Dr. Crab watched her go with a look of dissatisfaction on his face that he eventually turned on Ollie. He tried to put a reassuring hand on Ollie's shoulder, but Ollie shuddered and slapped him away. The doctor looked at his hand briefly and then returned it to his side.
0: What happened to you is regrettable,
1: unforgivable even the doctor said, but, and I don't say this lightly, you cannot take revenge on your, on what
0: did this to you, by killing its children. That's terribly unfair, don't you think? Ollie opened his mouth
1: to say something, but didn't know how to respond. Let me show you something, Dr. Crabb said, taking the greasy ultrasound handheld out of its cradle. The unclean thing had garnered a head full of grime and fuzz that Ollie could feel scraping against his skin. The doctor pointed to a pulsing white speck on the screen. That?
0: Right there? That's a heartbeat, Dr. Crabb said. Okay, Ollie said, turning his head away.
1: The doctor nodded to one of the heavies who pushed Ollie's face back toward the screen. Ollie's eyes burned with humiliation. This right here is the second heartbeat, the doctor said. Then his finger traveled from place to place. Right here is a surprisingly developed skull for this period of gestation. And here and here you can see the eyes. More interestingly, you can see the density of the brain tissue here and here. Do you understand what that might mean? Dr. Crabb gave Ollie a serious look, but Ollie just turned his head, trying to push his face into his pillow. He couldn't turn his torso without feeling like his guts were about to burst. It means these creatures, these babies, could be
0: as sapient as you or I, the doctor said. They are capable of thought. You don't know that, Ollie whispered. Of experiencing and understanding pain, Dr. Crabb continued. You don't know that, Ollie said louder this time. Of feeling and Dreaming just like you. You don't know that, Ollie
1: shouted. He sat up to get as close to the doctor's face as he could, but the sudden movement kicked the spasms into high gear. Pain flooded his body, straightening and then arching his spine, forcing him to bury the top of his head in the pillow. Dr. Crabb looked down on him pitiably. I understand your pain, he said and the emotional trauma this is causing you, but we will not allow you to hurt these little miracles you are carrying. The orderlies rushed to straighten Ollie out, one of them somehow managing to jam a tongue depressor between his teeth. He felt it splinter. We've had discussions with some officials who oversee this sort of thing, and they're of the mind that Roe v. Wade doesn't apply in your situation in any case, because you're not a woman. The tongue depressor snapped and Ollie felt splinters rolling between his teeth and into the spaces between his gums and tongue. The tongue itself was mostly out of the way, save for a part that had gotten caught between his left incisor and the tongue depressor. Bloody spit filled his mouth, choking him. Simply put, you have no right to terminate these babies just because they are inside you, son, Dr. Crabb said. The good news is that, even though we don't technically have to, we are going to provide free treatment to you for the duration of this gestation. In return, we'll oversee your daily life to assure you're doing what's best for the children. Can't be drinking, smoking, anything like that. Ollie would have told him to go fuck himself, but the ongoing seizure and the tongue depressor made that entirely too difficult. He tried instead to hate the doctor to death with his stare alone. It accomplished nothing. Let me know when this passes and we'll get him cleaned up, dressed, and on his way home, Dr. Crabs said to the closest orderly, whom he slapped on the back before taking one last look at the ultrasound readout and leaving. By the time the door
0: was closed behind him, Ollie was unconscious. Ollie was leaning against a wall at the law firm where he worked,
1: sweating, crying, and cleaning a puddle of his own yellowed vomit when he was fired. The bosses had known something was wrong with him for a while. Allie had covered for him when she could, but cheap excuses quite literally weren't worth much. It had been a few months since the attack in the alley and the horrifying stay in the hospital. He'd been back there a few times, even though it wasn't a place he could find on his own, much less visit. He'd been spirited away into an unmarked ambulance at a university hospital right in front of Allie, and then dropped back off at their apartment a week later. She still sort of thought the wound had something to do with a knife attack. He didn't have the heart to tell her what had really happened. In all honesty, he didn't know how she'd look at him when, if, he ever told her. The thought of that scared him the most. That she'd think of him as damaged or used up somehow, if he told her the worst of it. That for a second toward the end, he'd actually liked it for some reason. That he'd surrendered to it. If he told her that, she wouldn't love him anymore. And if she didn't love him, then nobody on earth did,
0: especially not himself. So the firing, while not terribly unexpected, was still a kick in the gut. You've got to go, Guillermo, the head janitor of a staff of three, told him.
1: Ollie looked from the pile of mess on the floor and then to Guillermo. You clean it then, he said, tossing the mop at Guillermo. He tried to take a step and almost fell to the floor. The familiar pain of the things flared up, nearly dropping him to his knees and sending a wave of nausea through his body. Guillermo caught him and the mop, one in each arm, and deposited both against the wall. "'The fuck is wrong with you, man?' Guillermo asked. He was middle-aged, his eyes and uniform the same shade of brown. "'You're a good worker, and then what? You start doing drugs or something? You're drinking?' falling around all over the office, pale as a ghost? The fuck, man? I'm not some fucking junkie, Ollie said, feeling sweat breaking out on his face. I'm sick is all. He almost gestured to the massive lump on his torso. The things had swollen him up like an honest-to-God pregnant woman while stripping away whatever muscle and fat they could take, it seemed, without killing him. His baggy janitor's uniform made it look like he'd grown an ugly beer belly. Sick, Guillermo repeated. Dying. You're fucking dying. Look at you. Ollie didn't have to see a mirror to know what Guillermo meant. He had no fat left on his skullish and sunken face, eyes bugged out and dark beneath stringy hair. So you fire me, huh? Ollie said. It's policy, man, Guillermo said. You're sick? Fine. But you're out of sick days. Use them up, and now you're coming to work and puking on shit slumping around, barely getting anything done. What am I supposed to do? Have everybody chip in on your work until you
0: get better someday? I will get better, Ollie said. Soon. Soon, Guillermo said. Well, I need that
1: mopped soon, he pointed to the puddle of puke on the ground. And I don't think your version of soon is going to be any quicker than me just hiring a new guy,
0: huh? Guess not, Ollie said. Turning to leave. Guillermo sighed. Hey, fuck, at least let me help you to the door,
1: he said, grabbing Ollie under his arm. Ollie shrugged him off, nearly falling to the floor. Get the fuck off me, he whispered.
0: He could hear Guillermo muttering to himself and the sounds of a mob being splashed around as he left through the front door. Ollie waited at home for Allie, but she never showed. He
1: fumbled around the apartment, not quite knowing what to do while he waited. He did the dishes, swept, and mopped, all while looking at the door and straining his ears for the sounds of her feet on the stairs outside. At around one in the morning, he fell asleep, worried now and sitting by the phone, waiting for it to ring. Waiting, waiting, waiting. He floated in darkness, feeling for warmth with his face. Not the sterile, itching warmth of the buffeting solar winds, but the deep electric warmth of people, of life and love and thought, the magnetic ripple of thought pervading the space between spaces, filling the static-laced voids with the spore of creation. And he finds it, feels it, floats toward and toward and toward it. He travels at speeds beyond sense or understanding, feeling all the while that he is not moving at all. Then he is there, living in the lush warmth of extant thought and feeling. Empathy and antipathy drips from every hard surface around him. He twists his skin until he is one of them, the ones that live here in this place, teeming with life. It has been so long he doesn't know how to conduct himself anymore. The light of these creatures is so bright, he's blinded back to darkness. But he finds one and lets it into himself, using its information to fill the appropriate spaces and then relishing in the feeling of creation. New life. Eggs whipping themselves together inside long dormant organs, now growing, now pulsing with their own extant thought and desire. They are only partial forms, however, and must be made whole, must share incubation and DNA, must let another's empathy and antipathy shower them, mold them, soak them, fill them, create them. She finds him in one of the places where breeding pairs are formed, a synthetic cavern riddled with chemical scents, the reeking odors of fermentation and distilled chemical spirits of water, wet matter, and organic cooling secretions of mating hormones and fear hormones and the chemical markers of good mates and healthy mates and willing mates. She finds him amongst all this and pursues, knowing he's the one the way anything that hunts meat knows the smell of blood and pursues it. She is fragile, of course. Stellar bodies are not made for the harsh gravitational wells of planets, despite their need for them to procreate, and so she is careful. He could kill her with a hard swipe of his crude internal skeleton. He could use his powerful primitive muscles to push those hard calcium edges straight through her skin, spilling her insides and her children into the bacterium and virus-laden atmosphere. So she is careful. She follows at a distance, moving slowly, waiting until the appropriate moment to show him her glory, to have him bear witness to the knowledge of the stars. The raw information bathes his optical receptors, which understand but cannot piece together the code. His mind slips and slides and is almost entirely gone. She does not want to hurt him. She must. The mating tubule is thrust into his abdomen and, for a second... He almost breaks free of the mental fugue and tears her apart. His limbs flail and she can feel the terrible bruising inside her, the tearing of essential systems and the flush of important fluids from one place to another. She gives him peace, along with her eggs, a secretion to send his simple endorphin distributors into overdrive. It works. He sleeps and she finishes despite how wounded she is. The ground beneath her is about to rotate back into the light of the local star, but not soon enough for the radiation to warm the atmosphere, enough for her mate to survive. Her shape becomes like his shape, and she makes a nest for him out of the cellulose panels beneath him. Once this nest is finished, her own primitive instincts draw her away from him and she unfurls, allowing the planetary winds to draw her up and up and, as she grows, the polar magnetic winds and, further from that, the steady and insistent winds of the local star until she is loosened, floating again in the black cocoon of eternity, tucked into the darkest space behind the planet's only moon. She sleeps deeply and dreams of the enveloping warmth of mental energy on the planet, curling tightly over the terrible damage he's done to her and allowing it to heal as she rests, Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, Westsiders. This episode's a long one, so we have time for a second ad break. But... If you hate hearing me talk in the middle of the episodes or ads in general, consider paying just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales for advertisement-free early releases of the regular stories and the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episodes. For five bucks, you also get PDFs of the monthly stories laid out just like a real novel and access to the Behind the Story episodes, where I go in detail about the method behind creating the month's story and any inspirations I have. You get even more content and free merchandise at the higher levels, so please consider supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Now, back to our story. Ollie kicked awake to the sounds of feet coming up the staircase, trembling badly and trying to shake away the dream, the nightmare he'd had about the creature from the stars. It faded quickly, though, like any dream, and he took stock of himself. He was sitting on their couch, a ratty blanket tangled in his hands and tucked up underneath his chin. His mouth was dry and tasted like shit. The door opened. Ali stepped through, her eyes betraying the deep misery of a terrible hangover, and looked at Ollie. She held the door open, staring at him with
0: one foot still outside. Oh, was all she said. Where were you? He asked. She sighed and shut the door,
1: locking it and then placing a hand high on the wood. She let it slide down slowly, the rasp of her fingers the only lonely sound in the room.
0: Out, she said, now looking at him. I went drinking with coworkers last night. You know they fired me? Ollie asked. Yeah, that's... Allie sighed. That's why I went out
1: with them. He didn't know what to say, so he didn't say anything. Eventually, she spoke.
0: I had sex with Carl,
1: and I am. She put her fingers to her forehead. She broke into tears, and Ollie could tell she was crying in spite of herself. And I don't know if I care that you care. Jesus, Ollie said, standing up and folding the blanket. It was hard to do, given the massive lump on his side.
0: He had to stand crooked to support the weight. Why? Because. Because. She took a deep breath, shrugged and slapped her thighs. Because I'm pissed at you
1: and myself and you don't fucking touch me anymore or look at me anymore or let me touch you or look at you or talk to me and it's really it's really, really fucking hard for me to live like that she laughed sobbing all the while i know something happened to you that night and i'm sorry for that but it's killing you and watching
0: that happen is killing me
1: she shrugged and slumped back against the door sliding down until her face was buried in her knees can you move ollie asked He'd slipped on his sneakers and a new gigantic jacket he'd bought to keep the mound of parasitic flesh covered when he went out. Allie looked up at him with a curious expression on her face. Then she moved out of his way
0: and he left, not bothering to slam the door behind him. He walked to the alley where it had all happened, all but limping for the pain of carrying the things with him. He could feel them reacting
1: to Allie's betrayal and the feeling it gave him wasn't pain, but an almost hallucinatory level of vertigo. It might have dropped him to the ground, but his determination to get away from that apartment was the strongest thing he'd felt in months. He wasn't even mad at Allie. He wanted to be, but feeling was an effort. She suddenly wasn't worth that effort anymore. It probably wasn't all her fault. The way she felt, at least. Fucking Carl was, for sure, Something she did completely of her own volition, but he hadn't been the best to her since the attack.
0: It was just that the feelings were his and he didn't want to share them. They'd feel too real then, and that's the last thing he wanted. Then
1: he was in the middle of the alley again, which made things more real than any simple admission might have. The cardboard was still in the same place, though the makeshift nest was gone. All the cardboard from that night, in fact, was gone. The spot there was probably just a routine dumping ground for the same sort of boxes. Still, he went over and laid on it, looking up at the sky. He thought he might feel something. Feeling anything but pain had been impossible for months now. It was much the same right then as he looked up at the pale thumbnail of moon resting in the blue sky. It was the sort of sky where the clouds are so white you don't notice the sky's gone pale until suddenly there's no blue left the kind of sky that makes cold weather feel all the more crisp. He laid there until he heard feet crunching
0: over stray chunks of sidewalk salt nearby, and then, feeling embarrassed, stood and waddled back home. Allie was gone. Oddly, the most upsetting thing was
1: how little the absence felt like an absence, like she'd been gone all along and the earlier interaction was little more than a blip or an afterthought. Only the bedroom held any sign of her passing. The typical post-hurricane feel of quickly emptied closets. A few of his things, a few of hers, lay strewn on the floor. He wondered if the mess was supposed to be a slight, or if she was just too busy to pick everything up. A folded piece of paper lay on the bed, the gentle curves of Ali's writing indenting the paper in blue and faced away from where he could easily read. He picked it up and walked through the apartment to the trash slipping it through the side of the flip-top lid without ever opening the thing. He returned to the bedroom and cleaned up what little mess Allie had left. The numbness was almost deadening so that his fingers felt soft and full of sand when he used them. The last article on the floor was a lone wire hanger, the kind with a cardboard tube along the lower crossbar, probably left over from some long-forgotten trip to the cleaners. Ollie picked it up and went to the kitchen. It took him a few minutes to find their meager toolkit, and a few seconds more to unfurl the neck of the hanger. The work was harder than he expected. His limbs were exhausted. He could barely even keep his eyes open, really. The thing made a satisfying pop when it came apart, having been under far more tension than he expected. A few more tweaks and the curves had become awkward, bends in a mostly straight and double-barbed skewer. Turning it over in his hands... It reminded Ollie of the pronged metal sticks his aunt and uncle used to bring along on camping trips to roast marshmallows. This was more twisted, uglier, and skinnier, but the resemblance remained. He undressed in the bathroom, taking off the big jacket, the two hoodies underneath that, the two shirts beneath those, and the undershirt that was the last layer in contact with his skin. He grimaced at the sight of himself the way he always did when he was faced with a mirror these days. The parasitic node was grotesquely swollen, lopsided, and bruised black near the entry wound. It faded to an ugly maroon-red ring around its base. The wound itself was a puckered, hideous mess. An asshole set in the side of his stomach. His belly button twisted up toward the right, pulled sideways and thinned some by the stretched skin. The stretching had left vicious gray-red marks all across the massive welt. They looked like scores upon scores of lacerations made with a crude and ill-used knife and all somehow sticking to the same vertical patterning, despite their chaotic placement. He pressed his fingers to the outside of the hole, wincing and bracing himself at the dizzying onslaught of pain. He pressed harder, still using only his fingers, watching as a thin stream of clotted blood and yellowish slime beaded, fattened, and dripped into the sink. He was so sick from the hurt of it, he had to lean his head against the mirror. All he watched as more beads of the stuff landed on the white ceramic, enough now to gather into a little pool that broke its own meniscus and slid quietly to the drain. The smell of it was terrible. Not just infection, but something else entirely. A smell wholly alien to his body, to the human organism even, that came across as a mix of ammonia and menthol. Below that triggered the smell of blood and the sticky, sweet scent of sickness. Terrible sickness. Terminal sickness. It had to come out. The things had to come out. He tried before, falling, drinking. But nothing affected the things inside his gut. The drinking, maybe, but by the eighth shot, a gloved hand had landed on his shoulder, and he'd been escorted out of the bar. There followed another trip to the hospital, this time in a blacked-out SUV where he couldn't see through the windows. The men around him had those same terribly bored expressions, as though anything shy of bloody violence wasn't worth their time. They wore civilian clothing, but it all seemed like a uniform anyway, all the shirts tucked in and tight and collared. Every belt loop had a belt in it, and the jeans looked almost starched. He noticed that even their shoes weren't really shoes, but brown, soft-soled combat boots. They all had tattoos as well, some more than others. One man had a hand coming out of his shirt to wrap around his throat, missing ink on the knuckles forming the shapes of moons and stars. The driver, the only man not wearing full sleeves, had a complicated geometrical pattern that covered his forearm. But all of them seemed to have at least one tattoo of a feather. Crossing a thumb on the back of a hand, one of them had it on his neck and another on his face. So small it almost looked like a birthmark. Then Ollie'd been taken out of the car and led to Dr. Crab's office, keeping his head down as the men all but dragged him. They never talked unless they had to, and they had little of interest to say. Right then, it was the man with the feather tattoo on his neck that said, Sit here and wait. He'd done what they said, shifting uncomfortably until he got the heavy, disgusting ball in his gut to settle in a way that it didn't rest on his permanently aching hips. Eventually... He was just laying across the hard plastic chairs, scooting his legs back and forth until the curve of his seat held his knees in a way that didn't make him want to cut his own legs off. It had been at the exact moment when he got comfortable that Dr. Crabb called for him, pointing to a similarly uncomfortable chair inside the office. There had been little in the way of small talk, just a lecture on the dangers of drinking alcohol while carrying a life around in your stomach. The doctor also shared the results of the last battery of tests with Ollie, continuing on even when Ollie protested that he didn't care to hear any of that and just wanted to go home. Everything is progressing like a normal pregnancy, Dr. Crabb had said, save, of course, for the oddness of the situation. The children are developing nicely. Can you not use that word? Ollie had said, not looking at the papers Dr. Crabb had dropped onto the table. Crabb sighed. Your gestation should be at a close soon, the doctor had said. But fetal health is paramount, especially in the last, well, trimester isn't the correct word, but you, you get the picture. Dr. Crabb crossed his arms. I know this isn't something you might like to hear, but you should be grateful for how short this is. I've overseen numerous pregnancies in my career, and human babies are heavier and more demanding than what you're carrying. Your hormone levels are normal. You don't have any risk of the myriad of complications that come with a typical pregnancy. My God, even a term is only five months compared to nine. You should really be thankful you're so lucky this is easy for you. A lot of women have it much harder. Can I leave? Ollie had asked, and the doctor had let him go after a touch more lecturing and some unwelcome, possibly unnecessary, body inspections. But he had let him go and the same group of silent, irritatingly boring men had dropped Ollie back at his apartment. Ollie
0: had been there then, though she wasn't here now. Now he was alone. He took off his jeans and shoes and
1: socks, stripping down to his underwear and sitting on the edge of the bathtub. He took the wire hanger and prodded at the weeping hole in his stomach. The pain was greater by far than he'd experienced just touching the region. He pressed harder and felt something give, unleashing a torrent of bloody yellow horror out of his belly and onto his legs and underwear. The smell was beyond belief. He pressed harder and felt himself swoon, waking up in the bathtub a few seconds later. He'd slumped down into the basin, his legs collapsing against the wall by the faucet in a way that had cut off his circulation. For a long, panicked moment, he struggled to entangle them being thwarted all the while by the odd shape of his belly, the slipperiness of the gore-slicked tub, and the fact that his legs wouldn't respond in the least. The thought of losing his legs over something so stupid caused a burst of panicky adrenaline that let him push himself onto the rim of the tub. He sat there, feeling his legs burning as the feeling returned and looking into the basin. His shadow moved away from a pool of red-yellow horror that made him turn and vomit onto the bathroom floor. Bits of hard, crystalline black chunks, some worn soft on their edges, were being carried along in the stream of goo toward the drain. This stuff was coating his arms, his legs, and his back, too, as well as most of his belly. He held his breath and turned on the shower, not bothering to pull the shower curtain. If water got into the downstairs neighbor's apartment, then fuck them. He had worse things to worry about. The water cut through the grime better than he thought it might turning the basin into a bubbling soup. He managed to stand and clean himself without falling, though a terrible vertigo had set in. He was half afraid to collapse and brain himself to death in the shower, half eager to just have it all done with. He pulled off his stained and ruined underwear and threw them into the wastebasket beside the sink. Then he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. Despite the horrific amount of material he'd gotten out of his body, the lump hadn't shrunk. Maybe a bit, but not much. Not that he could tell, at least, from looking. He could see himself now, all the more pitiful for his wet hair. Ketchup and mustard-stained legs and the sad sight of his penis beneath the mass of bruised flesh. Beneath the parasites. He gritted his teeth and knelt in the shower, finding the twisted and double-barbed coat hanger catching water near the head of the tub. He picked it up and put it into place over the hole in his stomach.
0: He would be rid of them, he thought, holding the thing tight with both hands. He would be rid of them. Ollie fell forward, letting all of his weight drive the twisted wire into the hole in his stomach.
1: Pain became a growing white light, suffusing the sound of water pouring, pouring, and
0: pooling around him, dissolving his thoughts and letting them evaporate to rise and rise and rise. She shudders out of her healing sleep and flutters fully open in the shadow of the moon
1: when she feels it. Death. The host. Death. Pain. The host. Pain. The children. The emphatic magnetism of the event is too great to bear and the frail matrices of her consciousness buckle beneath the strain. But hold. Then she is flying, dropping, accelerating in a mad dance through the rolling waves of the planet's magnetic field curving herself to catch the bounding solar radiation falling like rain from the surface of the moon. She becomes thin, thin as a razor, before she strikes the atmosphere and so slips between the resisting air currents, letting them catch here and there to make small alterations in her flight path, letting the winds carry her further still, whipping her across the surface of the planet toward the ugly miasma of pain and hurt that even now is beating at her fragile psyche. Then she is inside the cloud of psychic pain and loss. It echoes out like a scream, a storm, and she is hurtling herself toward the heart of it, burning reserves of solar radiation to push herself further, risking the possibility of implosion or even combustion as she opens herself to the electromagnetic chaos over the ground. It pushes her faster, faster, faster. Then she is inside the building. The place feels alive with the echoes of birth and death, of sickness and recovery. But the undercurrent and overcurrent of the place is pain, rivers of agony, eddies of torment, a thousand forms of suffering to which she has never been privy. She shapes herself like them and walks the corridors, leaning forward as though she is walking against a great gale. Then she finds it, the center of the storm. He is there, the host, but he is empty now and mostly unconscious. Tubes feed his own blood in and out of him, along with noxious gases she knows keep him still. There are others as well, large members of the species who ring the host and are now turning to look at her. They use the air to vibrate their thoughts at her, but she can feel only the presence of her children, born too soon, in the space behind the things. She splits and lifts herself high, feeling the panic, the growing aerial vibrations as the creatures see her true self. Then she is giving them the light, the truth, overloading their primitive minds with the deepest knowledge of the universe. One comes close enough to touch her, his fingers brushing down the sleek inner edge of her body, and she must steel herself against the pain this causes her. But her only concern is her children, and so she does not relent until the lot of them are mad and blind, thrashing on the ground. She finds her children in a clear container, laid on sheets of woven fiber. Only one is alive, The other is dead, punctured through the heart and head, its tiny organs on display through ruptures in its frail skin. She turns on the host. It is his fault. She can feel his intent through her children, the malice, the raw need to be rid of them. She turns to him and opens herself, seeing the gases haven't completely stolen his consciousness. She will blind him. She will tear away his sanity for what he's done to her. But she hesitates. She can feel it growing as he sees her. Not the great and terrible cloud of misery that was her dying and now
0: dead child, but a small and sharp thing. Rage. Hate. A pure, distilled need for violence
1: against her so powerful the images of her in his mind replace her own thoughts. He's ripping into her, tearing her, ignoring her lights and the
0: overwhelming power of her knowledge she staggers back and picks up the children the living and the dead and flees Ollie woke some hours later gasping skull
1: pounding like he'd been slammed over the head with a hammer something was suffocating him he pushed at it and found the flexible plastic of a hospital gas mask resting over his nose and chin then it was gone and he was breathing pure cool air again it tasted almost sweet despite the ammonia and antiseptic hospital smell of the room. He was naked, of course, save for a stained paper hospital gown. He touched the side of his body where the things had been, the parasites, and found it flat. There was nothing there now, save for some baggy flesh and a series of fat black sutures. He lay back on the hospital bed and wept. Eventually, he got out of bed and saw what had happened to the men that had brought him here. He'd only been partially conscious, maybe not even that, when they dragged him from the bloody pool in his bathtub. He'd had a full seven inches of the wire hanger buried inside his gut, suffering a pain so vicious he'd been laughing and screaming like a lunatic. He might have been doing that before they even got there, which would explain how they even got the call. So why they'd come instead of the regular police was a mystery he might never find a solution to. Neither those men nor Dr. Crabbe could ever tell him. The lot of them were laying spread out on the floor, either face down or on their backs, humming and chanting through chapped lips at the floor or ceiling. The eyes he could see were black, sunken, and cracked. Their faces were all red, like they had a bad sunburn, and most of them were missing eyebrows. Naked and unsteady, Ollie wandered man to man, gathering their wallets, car keys, and anything else of value laying on the hospital bed. The bed itself was badly stained with blood and more of the nasty yellow stuff. Most of them had guns, which he didn't bother with. Altogether, their wallets had a combined $2,300 and change. He stripped Crab to his underwear. The doctor was the only man in the room small enough that his clothes could fit Ollie. The other men were giants. The doctor never stopped gibbering as Ollie undressed him. The sounds coming from his mouth were unlike anything Ollie had ever heard a human make. When he was finished, looking almost like a silver screen tramp in the doctor's oversized corduroy pants and jacket, he looked at the plastic baby bed placed in the center of the room. He remembered the thing coming back for them. My children, her thoughts echoed. He had felt her. Now and before, he knew. Those dreams had been more than simple nightmares. He looked at the stains in the baby
0: bed, all that remained of the things that had been inside him, and walked away without looking back. Time passed, and things moved on. For a while, he was back together with Allie, who
1: now refused to be called anything but Allison. He stuck with Ollie, though she tried to call him Oliver. The times were okay, but every day felt like a bandage crusted over a mostly healed wound. He told her most all of what had happened sometime before the end, and, and they went their separate ways. The last thing she ever said to him was, I wish you had told me about it. He'd wanted to tell her, It wasn't any of your business. It shouldn't have been anybody's but mine. What he did say was, Sorry. And they shook hands. Years passed, and jobs, and girlfriends, and one boyfriend. Then a long, lonely period where he worked in the hours between sundown and sunrise, eating dinner when most people were rubbing the sleep from their eyes. For better or worse, he decided that other people weren't worth it. He'd just slug out life on his own until there wasn't any more to go. The government could deal with whatever they found in his squat,
0: one-bedroom apartment near campus when the time finally came. At least... That's how he felt. It was in the bloody dawn sunlight, outside a diner in a busy part of downtown,
1: when he saw them in the crowd. A woman and child, holding hands across five lanes of Main Street, standing by the bus stop that would take him home. They were hard to see amongst the people crowding around them. They could have been anybody on earth, though their hair was slightly too white to be blonde and their eyes a touch too red to be brown. It was the eyes of the woman that caught his attention, cutting through the fog of his life like a bit of cold water in an otherwise warm pond. They looked at each other for a long time, the little girl staring hard at him, then the crowds and then nothing at all, the way children do. The street cleared and the walk sign flicked to white and then the crowds were moving around him toward that woman and her child. He thought about crossing the street with everybody else, but instead turned his head, spat on the concrete, and left in another direction, content to find his own way home. Well, folks, that was Carrier. What did you think of it? Have you ever been forced to do something awful against your will? What would you have done in Ollie's situation? Let us know in the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. The Horror and Lit Club is a place where fans of the show, some call themselves Westsiders or even Westies now, can talk to each other about the show, the recommendations, and anything else that comes to mind. The only real rules are don't be a dick to each other and try to keep your posts focused on horror and literature. But even that last rule is pretty soft, so come on by. Just search for the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. Hey folks, if you didn't know, each episode of the Westside Fairy Tales takes weeks of work. Most of that is writing, reading, rereading, rewriting, and editing again and again until the stories are just where we want them. On top of that is the additional time sink of recording, editing, and all the miscellaneous extra things like paying taxes, marketing, and website and podcast hosting fees. There are a lot of ways to support our work here, and the easiest by far is to just buy yourself a nice official logo mug or Something else from the merch store at westsidefairytales.com slash merch. Like I said during the promo break, we have plenty of options, and it's a great way to support the podcast and get a little something you can hold in your hands in return. This month, we're offering 10% off our 11 by 17 inch promo posters. Do you want a kick-ass rose skull from the Westside Fairy Tales logo hanging on your wall? Do you want it signed at no additional charge? Then go get you one! At WestsideFairyTales.com slash merch and use code carrier at checkout. For those of you who hate advertisements on podcasts, for just a dollar, you can get rid of those and not have to worry about hearing them again, at least on the Westside Fairy Tales. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Westside Fairy and subscribe at the $1 level. That'll give you access to an RSS feed you can plug into most any podcatcher to listen to the special episodes at your convenience. For $5, you get access to monthly eBooks of the episodes, as well as an entire backlog of story PDFs from the last season and a half, and access to the exclusive Behind the Story episodes, in which I discuss the creation of this month's story and talk at length about a million other things that sort of, kind of, inspired me to write it. And, of course, the most important thing you can do to support us is to just share this show. Leave a review, share this episode on Reddit, on Facebook or Twitter groups or other forums. It helps the show immensely. So... If you like the West Side Fairy Tales, please, 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 please share this episode with the world. Well, guys, this episode rounds out the fourth season of the West Side Fairy Tales. Almost four years ago, I started this podcast figuring nobody would ever listen, and for a while, at least I was right. But thanks to some help from friends and the support of an amazing community of podcast fans, we've grown our audience a little bit each year. Along with that, We've grown our Patreon and, just like I have in the few years before this, I'm going to read the names of everybody that's contributed to the West Side Fairy Tales since it began. I'll do that here in a second, but first, let me tell you a little about the summer break and next season. Unlike the previous seasons, I won't be doing a midsummer minisode. mini As many of you know, I used to work for a show called Monstro and spent most of 2018 and 19 on a crunch for that, which sort of ripped my soul out of my chest. The West Side Fairy Tales turned from a passion project to a side project for me at some point, which is a distinction I do find mutually exclusive. Something about the mentality from that other project leaked into something I loved, until I wound up uh, where I am now, resenting some of the finest work I've ever done because I'm not getting 200,000 listens an episode and resting in the top 10 on iTunes. On top of that, I feel isolated from my actual community in the podcasting world, audio fiction. It's weird to have been doing this for so long and to have such a big audience, but people by and large have never fucking heard of me in the audio fiction community. This made me realize that I've lost track of my direction in this thing. I've done everything I can to ensure this mentality hasn't leaked into the podcast, save for this little screed here at the ass end of the season's last episode. Hopefully between my impending marriage in August and the rest of the summer, I'll be able to crack my knuckles, sit back, and get back to work in a meaningful way. When summer ends, we are going to be debuting the first season-length story in West Side Fairy Tales history, which itself is a sequel to one of the most beloved stories in the West Side Fairy Tales canon. The title of this work is Scars in Time, but I won't be sharing much else about it until the previews come out this summer. That said, once I finish reading the names of our patrons, I'll be playing the Season 5 limited theme song, Smoke and Ink. So, if you got a second, stick around. And until next time, as always... Stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2020 WSF Productions LLC. Our Patrons In the official West Siders tier Fred Kuchenmeister Christine S. Teresa Cochran Emma Blackwell Danielle Robertson Once Upon a Crime Garrett Cartmill Lisa Weaver Aaron McLaughlin Matthew Mauer Sean O'Neill Janice J. Mikowski. Amanda M. Amy Henry Laura Mickelson Nancy Brooks Michelle Mabel, Stephanie Pedley Christy Mitchell Anna Cecil Mary C. Elisabe Dinal Sam Swenson Wildy Sarah Sartolomna Esmeralda Torres Lori Vasquez Luxie Natalie Viegas, Amy Kemper Denny Cassie Lynn Blevins Lauren Solomon Sid Smith and Jessica Rabbit In our Westside Regulars tier Soraya Crowley our first ever patron C.C. Howell Jack Luna Melissa Robertson Mindy Rister Maria Thun Francesca Martinez Jess Lurvy, Jess DeCento Brian McLaughlin Dana Mora DeWitney Moore John Kelly Sarah E. Samuelson Alice Houck Matt Weaver Midge Joan Kimberly Jessica Elder Chuck Berry Julia Hewitt Casey Kohlhard, Jake Noble Jason Young Story Machine In the Absolute Gangsters tier Squilax McGreevy Danny Camper Aubrey McLeod McLaughlin, Jesse Fernandez, Stephanie Hammond, JT Smee, Colin Harling, Kendria Wells Young, Jason Wojnowski, Kevin League, Ruth Levine. Platinum Savage tier, Lily McWilliams. Thank you all so much for your patronage, and I hope to see you next season. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witching Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told and been telling doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash
0: westbygod.